Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. This is Jackson Huff. Welcome to Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for listening. As always, really appreciate it. This week, great guest. I'm interviewing Guy Powell. Now, I've had a lot of people on in the past that have had two very different topics. I know a few weeks ago I talked to somebody who is a professional concert pianist and was on a reality show called Killer Camp, you know, about kind of scaring about the death of, uh, of the contestants to get voted off. So that's a, a very different type of thing. Others in the past have been that way too. Mr. Powell, I think that he, uh, he is right up there with them, if not... Uh, if not, maybe takes the cake on two very different topics. We're going to talk to him about um, the Shroud of Turin, and then we're also going to talk to him about his marketing book. Now, the thing I was most interested in was, of course, talking about the Shroud. Interesting there, just um, I guess for the sheer history and the, I guess, controversy with it. He's going to talk all about what the Shroud of Turin is. For those who don't know... It is a burial shroud. It was basically the cloth that was wrapped around somebody um, after they die. This particular shroud, for the past thousand, two thousand years, people have thought this is this shroud that that Jesus was was buried. What what he was covered with. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, we're not going to get into to anything. Beyond that, I, um, you know, of course, this podcast is all about just open-mindedness completely. Uh, I do happen to, to be Christian, but, you know, I don't think you have to uh, have to prescribe to that to, to enjoy this story. Um, whether you, uh, I guess, believe in, in, uh, in Christianity, believe in Jesus, or you don't, not, not something that, that we're going to discuss, but we're going to talk about whether this was really that burial shroud, whether you think this is just some some dude or whether you think it was was uh was jesus uh that's uh, that's up for debate by a lot a lot of people i think there's been uh you know whole history channel shows about uncovering the mysteries of the shroud whether it really was jesus whether it was just some other person or whether it's just a complete forgery um the catholic church owns it now and they don't really display it very much which doesn't help and we talk about that too um the guy actually wrote a book about the Shroud of Turin. He kind of wrote it in a fictional way, of course. There's a lot of, of nonfiction to it. There's a lot of historical parts that you're going to learn. But he writes it in a way that, uh, I guess, kind of takes some liberties and, and creates his own kind of world of, of somebody trying to get the cloth and, and all that kind of stuff. So he makes it more digestible, for sure. A very deep topic that's got a lot of... Uh, specifics to it and he makes it digestible as kind of a an interesting story to read so thank you and enjoy that uh, we spend the, uh, a good chunk of the beginning and I would say probably 60 70 percent of the interview talking about that then we talk about his career in marketing and I don't know if you know but that's what my degree is in that's what my undergrad and grad degrees in so of course I can talk about this type of thing I don't really get into a bunch of marketing or any kind of business podcast type stuff because that's not what this is uh, on a regular basis but we talked about his books and 
how marketing changed so much during COVID, which I think anyone would be interested in learning just a little bit about. Definitely a different world, and people had to start marketing on a totally different medium. You know, people weren't driving to work. That's what he said. You know, People weren't uh, able to, to really get much out of billboards when they weren't driving to work or get much out of those radio ads. So interesting how companies adapted, how they did, you know, a, a 185 and completely changed the way that they market to people. I think that's interesting for anyone, whether you're into business or you're not. Uh, everyone is marketed to every single day. So I think that you're going to enjoy that. Some of his other insights in, in that world is cool too. But yeah, going to go from a historical shroud that has controversy behind it. Is it the one that Jesus was buried in? Is it something that somebody else was buried in is it all just a bunch of nonsense and then we're going to go to the marketing world so two very vastly different topics hopefully one of them interests you kind of the the the, uh the awesomeness would be uh if both of them do but uh here is my interview with guy powell i'm here today with guy powell mr powell how are you hey jackson i am doing fantastic how are you I'm doing good. Yeah. So we've got quite a few things to cover, some very different topics. That's always my favorite when I get somebody who's got just a diverse set of things to talk about. Uh, before we kind of get to either one of those things, just introduce yourself, if you would. Yeah, Guy Powell. And uh, I guess uh, the two topics uh, that we're going to be talking about, one of them is a recent book that I wrote, which is uh, on marketing post-COVID. And we are hopefully, hopefully, hopefully in the post-COVID world. Mm. And then I have uh, kind of a passion on the side that is writing a historical fiction on the Shroud of Turin. I'm excited to talk about both of them. I want to kind of start outside of the marketing world. And just before we get to the actual topic that, you're, that you kind of delve so deeply into, where do you think that that passion for for history and historical fiction where where did that come from just lifelong you've always loved it or or where are we at with that well i'd say it's uh, probably about uh 15 years ago maybe yeah maybe it is a little longer than that i always enjoyed read reading like uh, uh michener's uh, hawaii and then i read probably six or eight of his books and they were they were the historical fiction. And, you know, so you would learn about, in that case, Hawaii. And I remember, it's like a, a thousand pages. And I remember reading that almost in one sitting. I was on a flight from California to back to Atlanta. And I uh, sat there and I remember that there was a little guy next to me, six years old or so, or eight years old. And he says, hey, mister, you ever going to put that book down? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, because he obviously wanted to talk to me or I don't know what, but uh, he was just amazed that I was just reading it so much. So that those that series of books probably got me involved in historical fiction. And then I read a handful of books uh, like David McCullough, you know, and, and the ones on the, the various presidents. So, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams and whatever. And all of those were awesome. And, and that just got, it got me into thinking about, well, how could you write a, you know, a historical fiction? And then my brother, he gave me this book on the Shroud of Turin, and, uh, and I started reading it, and it was a historical book. So it went fact by fact by fact, date by date by date. So 1356, this happened, 1389, this happened, whatever. And I said, you know, this would be a much easier book to read if there was a fiction and a story to it. And uh, so it... it it took me, you know, still about 10 or 12 years 
to start to think about writing it. And then when post-COVID hit, I said, you know, I'm stuck in the house. I'm just going to start writing it. And I finally, I finally did. And so I, I wrote that book. And, and also I wrote that book in parallel with my other book, my post-COVID marketing machine marketing book, which is more about my business. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to I talk about the, the process of both of those, but I would like to break things down just as much as possible for, for the listener. I don't expect them to come in with all of this knowledge. So just tell us for people who's like shrouded Turin, one, what, where the world is Turin, two, what the world is a shroud. So tell us a little bit about both of those, if you would. Absolutely. So Turin is uh, maybe in, in English would be Torino, Italy. It's uh, probably two thirds of the way up the boot. And, um, and there is this cloth. It's a 14 foot long by three and a half foot wide linen cloth. And there's an image on it. And, uh, and the real question is, how did that image get there? And so the history of the cloth uh, starts about 1300, where it's uh, actually documented that, you know, in, in writing where it's documented as having been exhibited and whatever. And, uh, and actually, there's a picture behind me here on the wall that kind of shows a little bit of that. And in any case, uh, so how did it get to, uh, how did it get to being written about? And then if it is the, the burial cloth, so that's what the word shroud means, if it is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, then how did it get from Jerusalem all the way to, uh, to uh, Turin, where it is today? And that's kind of what my book is about. And it follows then along 13 different stories over the 2000 years to uh, try and provide some kind of a history, not the history, a history of the Sharada Turin. And the book right now, uh, its working title is The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you had to explain it rather than me, because I've, I've just in, I already kind of knew a little bit about it, but just in my research before we, we spoke, it's definitely not without controversy of what this is. I mean, there's people who are adamant that it is exactly what, what you mentioned, the burial cloth of Jesus. There's people who are adamant that it's just the biggest hoax ever. You know, even the Catholic Church has weighed in where they basically said they're not going to weigh in. Um, so it's a very controversial topic. So I guess with your book, how did you, I mean, did you come at it kind of looking at both sides? Are you very adamant on one side or the other? You just examine it and let people decide for themselves or, or where, where, what approach does this book take? Well, yeah, good point. And you're right about there are three sides to it. And uh, but I took the side that the shroud is true. And I'd say, OK, maybe 98 percent probability. Nobody nobody ever, ever says 100 percent. So I'm going to stay away from that. But I'm definitely what's called an, an authenticist. So I more or less believe that it is the authentic burial cloth, burial shroud of Jesus Christ. And, um, but then for the book, then I said, okay, I'm going to take that side and I'm going to write a story as if it is true, um, as opposed to, which would be interesting too, is to write a book in a similar way to talk about how could it have been a, uh, a forgery? How could it be fake? How could it have been painted? Uh, how could some medieval painter, you know, try and paint this thing or dye the cloth or do something to the cloth to make that image on the cloth and then have it be, uh, you know, revered and venerated over the, the last uh, 700 years when the first historical references to it came up. 
So I, I guess the one thing I would just wonder, just obviously playing devil's advocate, you know, it not being by a, an artist at all. What if it's just somebody else? It's a, it is a burial shroud, but it's just not who, who everyone wants it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's certainly that uh, quite often when you read the papers that are written about the shroud, uh, it's talked about as the uh, the man of the cloth or the man of the shroud or the the man in the cloth, you know, something like that. And so instead of saying, well, that's Jesus in the in the burial shroud, it's the man in the cloth. And I think there's reasonable, uh, you know, you can in, with using reason, you could assume that there was a man there. You can see the scourge marks. You can see the wound in the side. You can see the the crown or the cap of thorns and the blood coming uh, out of the head. And you can see all of the other things that are listed in the Gospels. So you can definitely say it's a man. He's got a beard. Definitely a man. It's definitely a human. It looks like the blood is, to a reasonable extent, probably human. It's probably AB uh, blood. And then whether it's the Jesus Christ burial shroud or the man of, the sh of a shroud, uh, you know, that you could make some, you know, different assumptions there. So, um, but I think once you get to the man in the shroud, then you can kind of say, given what the gospels are and given how the gospels are a mirror uh, of what's in the shroud, then, you know, you can kind of jump to the next conclusion that it is Jesus. And actually Pope John, I think it was John Paul, uh, he then said that the shroud is a mirror of the Gospels, and that was kind of his term, without necessarily saying that the shroud is authentic. He's saying it's a mirror of the Gospels, which could be that it's fake, but, you know, could be true. If it is true, it certainly mirrored the first four Gospels, where you have all of the, the all the different references to what happened to Jesus during the, during the Passion. Yeah, so why do you think that, because I don't think, because it's, it's, it's at a... Catholic Church, where well, I don't know whether it's a cathedral, a basilica, or just a church, but it's at a, a church in Turin, Italy. Why do you think that, because I don't think this has helped with the whole mystery of exactly what it is, that most of the time it's hidden away. It's not something that they've put on display very often. I think the last time that they really put it on display was during, right after Benedict was about ready to, to leave the... Um, you know, his post. So why do you think that they keep on putting it away and kind of being so mysterious about it? Well, there's certainly, they're concerned about the damage to it. And so it, it's in the church, it's in St. John's Cathedral in, uh, in Turin. And uh, it's, it's in the church and it's, um, and I, I haven't been there, so I haven't seen it, but it, as I'm told, it's against the wall, but they cover it with a picture of the shroud or a cloth picture of the shroud so that it doesn't get too much light on it and doesn't get damaged. And, uh, but it's interesting though, the recently, the number of exhibitions have, have been relatively few. And uh, to your point, uh, the church now owns it. And so they have not been uh, uh, exhibiting, exhibiting it very much. Now, back in the time of this picture behind me, that was uh, 1655. It was shown from the 1300s to the 1600s, documented hundreds of times. And so then during that period, when it was in different churches, it was shown very much. And then eventually, in, um, you know, at some point, it was moved to the, the church in, uh, in, in Turin, where it was then shown. Uh, but, you know, what's, what's also kind of funny or kind of interesting, I guess, is that the church itself has only been 
the owner of it very recently. And uh, up until that time, it's been owned by royalty. So, or that's the theory anyway. So it's possible that it was owned by King Louis, one of the Louis in France. It was possible it was owned by the Duke of Athens. It was uh, probable or possible owned by one of the emperors in Constantinople. It's possible that it was owned by uh, one of the kings in Edessa, which is, uh, which is uh, uh, Eastern Turkey. And so then the ownership, once it, once kind of like the, the, the apostles died off and then the early church kind of started to form, then it was kind of brought to the royalty. And then, of course, once they got a hold of it, they didn't want to uh, let go of it. Now, they did let go of it when they were forced to, so to speak. So some of the history early on, you have then the Persians, the Sassanids invading and, and, and uh, fighting the Roman Empire. And so then you wanted to get it away from Eastern Turkey. You wanted to move it more inland to the capital of, uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire, which was Constantinople. And so then you wanted to protect it. Then, of course, once the emperor has it, if I'm going to have it, I'm not going to get rid of it. Now, he did get rid of it, supposedly, uh, because uh, after the Crusades and a couple of other you know, historical activities, then he ran out of money and he more or less sold or traded it off. And, and that depends on which, which theory you look at, but he basically is either sold or traded it off or it was taken um, after one of the Crusades. Yeah, I think it's just a wonder, given obviously the, the age of it, um, regardless of whether people think that it, it's real or not. I mean, I, I think everyone says that it's at least five or 600 years old, uh, if not obviously way older than that. So the age of it and just so many people that it has, you know, changed hands with and a lot of people who probably consider themselves pretty, uh, pretty much the gods of their time that somebody hasn't been, I guess, you know, let their ego get a, the best of them and, you know, went up in flames. So I guess I'm just surprised that it's, it has lasted. Well, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it has survived a handful of fires. It survived um, a handful of uh, other water stains and things like that. There's a whole bunch of of uh, patches that have been sewn in based on a fire in the 15 in the 1500s there's some what are called poker holes where like a hot poker or something burns some holes in the cloth and so it has survived uh, actually quite a quite a quite an ordeal and it it's it is it is also interesting that the the majority of the of the image has survived and is is basically intact where the stains are and where the fire uh, uh, patches are, they're more or less on the side. So the image itself is probably still maybe 90% intact. Now that's, that's really cool for sure. So you, you said with the book, you wanted to kind of make it more digestible for people, not just, you know, the, the hard facts that are, are hard to kind of slog through. So how do you, you talked about it kind of weaving fiction into that, Talk a little bit more about how you you did that. I feel like people would be interested on how you add sure. fiction to it. Yeah. So um, let's say that we are uh, right in the middle of the passion. So Jesus has just been brutally, brutally, almost to death, uh, beaten. Uh, and the the cloth shows about a hundred, what are believed to be a hundred, hundred and three uh, uh, wounds from a uh, from a whip. 
And, um, and so then here you are, uh, you know, he's then crucified, you know, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so uh, the normal way that you would bury somebody that's important to you is that you would put him in a, a tomb and you would wrap the body in a cloth, a shroud. And if you were then one of his friends or followers or family, then you'd say, oh, my God, we got to go buy a cloth. Where do we buy a cloth? So my story starts out with exactly that in mind. So I have a, I have Nicodemus, who you may know, he was, uh, you know, a, a, an early follower of Jesus. And he then goes to a friend, a follower of another follower of Jesus, say, hey, we got to buy a cloth. Jesus is going to die in a little bit. We need a cloth. So then he uh, basically gives him some money and says, go buy a cloth. And then he sends his son out to a couple of different weavers and he then goes off and buys a cloth. Now, what's interesting is, as you can imagine, uh, a cloth of that size. So this is a 14-foot side, you know, 14-foot cloth by three feet wide. A 13-year-old boy uh, probably doesn't know what what that means, and uh, you know, and it's Passover, and he says, "Oh, okay, well, I can go do that." You know, I I bought stuff before, and so he goes running off, and of course, he can't run very far. And that's because Passover has taken place and there's hundreds of thousands of people, Jews that have just come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so he's, you know, the streets are crowded. There's people all over the place. They're carrying pigeons. They've got their offerings. They've got their, you know, they've got their cows and sheep and lamb or whatever it is that they're going to offer. And the, the streets are totally full. And of course, the Jews kind of go, today's a really bad day, you know, Passover, we got to be home by, you got to be in your house by six o'clock. And this boy is running around to a couple of weavers, and he's trying to find a cloth. Now, of course, you have to also think about what the life is like at that time. And I tried to add some realism to it. So I have him running into, uh, there's an interesting little uh, story uh, from uh, Dionysus, he was one of the emperors at the time. And uh, he actually set the prices of what people were paid. And uh, so he has the soldiers, they're paid, I can't remember, let's say 3000 drachmas a year. And, and then he actually has a job in his list of setting prices that a sewer scraper is paid more than a soldier. And a sewer scraper goes into the sewers. So they had sewers, they had actual real sewers, and you would scrape off the sewage off of the uh, off of the sewers. And uh, and as you can imagine, he smells and whatever. And um, and then the little boy runs into him. And so there's some interesting little tidbits like that to bring out some of the facts that are going on at the time. Uh, and then but also realize that, hey, you know, I'm in need of getting this cloth, I got to get a cloth. And, you know, and my dad wants me to and Nicodemus wants me to and and then, you know, then obviously that cloth then makes its way to, uh, to Calvary and, and, uh, and then to, uh, you know, to the, to the cross and, and then finally to the tomb. It's very, very interesting for sure, I guess. So in researching for all of this, definitely a topic that like, like we've already talked about has been heavily scrutinized and it is a little bit controversial. So what made you decide, Hey, this is something that I want to tackle. Is it just reading that book and it, kind of speaking to you and you want more people to kind of understand the story or what made you want to want to want to write about it? Well, that was definitely the the uh, the uh, initiative that it gave me the initiative to do that. No question about it. And um, and so then as I was, um, uh, you know, got into it and I, I just found the history fascinating. And I don't know, I've written I've read uh, the 9-11 Commission report 
And I don't know if you've read it at all, but it's a, a thousand page thing. And it's, and it's, it is truly riveting, but it's also at this minute and this second, this happened at this minute and this second, this happened. And, uh, and it was awesome. And so then with this, this book from, uh, it's actually from a, a real early uh, researcher, Ian Wilson, and it's called the blood in the shroud. And, uh, and that's then what, you know, spurred me on. And I said, Oh, this could easily be made into something that, the normal person might want to read. And that's really what, what got me into wanting to write it. Now, I will admit, uh, when I got into it about the middle of it, I go, man, I really bit off more than I could chew. Mm -hmm. And it was hard uh, getting the history right and doing the research on the history. And I had somebody helping me out. He was fantastic uh, because I really wanted to make it real as best as possible. And one of the things I found that was fascinating going back to that time and, and the Roman soldiers at that time, uh, as you can imagine, nowadays, you know, we have chlorinated water, but back then they had, you know, they had water, it was fresh water, but it, it you know, it was it filled with germs and dysentery and whatever. And so what they would do to get rid of the, the germs and make the water safe is they would either put vinegar in it, or they'd put wine and or vinegar and wine. And that vinegar and wine meant that even, you know, small kids would be drinking a mixture of vinegar and water or wine and water. And everybody was drunk. Everybody was drunk because they're drinking wine and water. And so uh, one of the things that's, that comes out of that then is, as you may recall, is that the, um, uh, on the cross, Jesus is given a sponge with vinegar water on it. And, uh, and, you know, when you think about that and you think about why they had to do that, they wanted to disinfect the water. So they gave him disinfected water and it happened to have a, you know, the, the, the you know, the vinegar in it. And then I can't remember hyssop, I think was in it as well. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I like that you mentioned the nine 11 report. You kind of, cause you kind of reminded me earlier when you talked about how you wanted to kind of make a very dense topic, something more digestible. I actually interviewed somebody who wrote a book based on the 9-11 report that they wanted to make that more digestible themselves. And they had came to it because they actually were in the White House press pool during that time. Mm. So he had written a book about his experience with the president that day that was a lot easier to digest than, than that report. So I thought that was really interesting that you mentioned that because there was somebody who looked at that same report and thought this was way too way too dense for for the common yeah. person to read so i think yeah. that's really really cool and i'm glad that you've done the same thing with with this topic too because i think it'll make a a lot more people more willing and, and eager to to hear more about the 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 story for sure so where is this book um kind of in the process now i know that it's not one that's published yet so where where are we at with it well the uh, the manuscript has been submitted to the uh, publisher and, uh, and I will admit publishers go a lot slower than I'd like them to, but nevertheless, I mean, they're valuable and this one's a great publisher. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's in the middle of uh, being uh, in the middle of its final edit. So the manuscript is done. So as far as I know, you know, I'm done with it. But nevertheless, the editor is going to find stuff. And, and, you know, I've written a handful of books, as you know, and uh, so they're, they're absolutely going to find stuff. So there'll be a little bit of going back and forth on that. The cover is now in design process. I had a tentative cover, which I really liked, and I think they're going to uh, make that even better. And uh, so then, you know, once you're kind of in that train, we're looking at the January timeframe for it to actually being, um, uh, you know, uh, on in bookstores near you. No, I, I like it. And that's something we're 
definitely will look out for. Let's kind of get to the book that is further along. I think it's already probably out there. Yep. Um, let's talk about before we get to the book, just your your background in in marketing. Obviously, you've got one. Given you wrote a book all about marketing, maybe two books about it. Yeah, actually, I've written uh, I don't know four or five books all together. So uh, yeah, so I've been uh, in my real job, which pays the mortgage. Hmm. Uh, I do uh, marketing consulting, and so I help companies, lar- typically larger companies, to connect their marketing activities to sales. So when they do an ad, uh, you know, on uh, TV, like an Aflac ad or whatever, and you see the duck, how much more incremental sales did that ad give you? Well, that's what we do. And then the next piece of that is, okay, so I spent 10 million on that ad and I got 100 million in sales or whatever it came out to, did that generate a profit for me? And so our goal is to take that ad, this investment that you take on that connected to sales and then determine how much, uh, how much revenue is, was generated and profit was generated. So the book is called Post-COVID Marketing Machine. I had a, uh, I've written a book right before this, which was called the, uh, which was called the, uh, just the marketing machine. And the idea is to help senior marketers to be more predictable in the marketing, more accountable in the marketing and then more profitable in the marketing. And so the, and what you want to do is you want to kind of have a machine. If I put in parts, if I put in energy, I know I'm going to get something out the other side. And so in this case is I'm going to put in marketing dollars and I know I'm going to get, get sales out the other side. And that's kind of the concept. Now, um, as you can imagine, COVID came around and uh, just threw everything into, into chaos. And so when we were talking with our clients and then friends in the industry and stuff, uh, there was just everything changed. And so the idea was in the face of massive change, how can you still deliver on the promise that marketing generates new incremental revenue for the business? And so we interviewed uh, quite a few different companies uh, the we interviewed George, the, uh, some friends at uh, Georgia Aquarium, uh, at um, at Comcast, and I mean you name it. We we did a whole bunch of different interviews, and we understood then what was going on. And I remember you know so vividly a couple of them saying we were running around with our heads cut off because all of a sudden nobody was going to the office, so you don't need radio advertising. Nobody's driving in the morning, so you don't need a billboard. People are watching TV except they're watching and they're binge watching on, you know, on Netflix or Roku or whatever. Mm-hmm. So all of their advertising had to be shifted over to that platform. And they had to, you know, they had to cancel everything they were doing. All the sports venues were, were turned off. There was no more football games. There were no more baseball games. And these marketers, they said, well, if we're, you know, if we were previously really well tied to a baseball game or a football or a golf match, we got to do something with it my bonus is still based on whether we sell or not. And so, you know, they're going to do whatever they can to get their bonus. And our, our efforts were uh, with our clients is to help them make sure that they get their bonuses. And that is to then say, well, they shifted, they reacted, you know, they turned on a dime and they delivered sales, even in this very, you know, very challenging environment. And that's then uh, the premise really of the, of the, of the book, the post COVID marketing machine. So what happened during that time? Obviously, it was a lot less areas to to advertise in, you know, just like you were talking about, whether it was on streaming platforms, whether it was on TV, 
you know, there's only so much time that you, we obviously we don't have 30 minute commercial breaks so everyone can get their marketing in all their <laughs> advertising in. So did things just get much more expensive on the platforms that people were actually paying attention to? Was somebody able to make sure that that didn't happen or, or what, what happened there? Well, uh, a lot of things happened, but uh, typically as a marketer, what we want to understand first is how did consumer behavior change? And once we understand that, then we can work backwards and figure out what we need to do to respond to how the consumer's behavior changes. And that's the most important thing. So we, we identified three different dimensions of change. The first one is, is that consumer purchase behavior was different. I vividly recall I was sitting here at my desk and I was working and I said, you know, I need to get something for something. I was, and it was like a, I think it was a UPS or UPS went out and I got up and I was going to drive to the Walmart I get in the car and I'm about out the driveway. And I say, what am I doing? Just to order the damn thing online. And so I, you know, I turn around, I get back, I come up here, I look on, on eBay or on uh, Amazon and I order a UPS or whatever. So all of a sudden, the purchase behavior of consumers totally changed. Everything was now buying it online. Now, not only buying little things or food or whatever, they were buying big things. They were buying mattresses, they're buying furniture, they're buying cars. Everything was being bought online and, and people were not going out and even trying the car, test driving the car. They just buy it uh, without really without even seeing it. And so, uh, so that behavior was, uh, was the biggest change. And now you could say that that change um, was kind of underway. Certainly the younger folks were already doing that. Now it was really the acceleration of that consumer purchase behavior change for the, uh, the, the older generations, the, the Gen Xs and then the millennials uh, and then the uh, boomers rather. And so then, uh, you know, so that happened. That's the, that's the first big one. The second thing is, as you kind of mentioned, and as I kind of hinted to, is that the consumer, what I call consumer media consumption behavior. So how we consume media is now totally different. So now, you know, you're watching, uh, you're watching movies on TV, on your, on your iPad, you're watching them on your phone, you're, uh, you're, you're binge watching, you're signing up to all the online things. So that said, well, wait a minute now, I can't do my advertising the way I used to. I can't advertise on the golf on regular TV. I've got to advertise on the, on, you know, if there were golf. I've got to advertise on uh, where it's on connected TV on the smart TVs. And so then I had to, you know, so I had to understand that. And then the last thing, which is also kind of fascinating, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but the consumer response behavior, the media response behavior has changed. So I see an ad and instead of, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to go visit the car dealership this weekend. No, 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 no. What, what the boomers and the Gen Xers are doing is they're going immediately online. They're, top, they're typing in Chevy. They're typing in Hyundai. They're typing in Kia, whatever it happens to be. And they're doing their research almost immediately once they see that ad. And that response behavior is, is uh, changed significantly. And then the advertisers realize that. And I don't know if you've seen it, but they've also started to put QR codes on TV in the middle of the ads. So now as a, as a consumer, I could take my phone, point it at the TV and click all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm on the site very easily. And so then those are the three primary dimensions. And once you understand that, then you can kind of look back and say, well, how do, how do we now optimize our marketing to still be able to get the results that I need, given that the, 
media that the consumer purchase behavior is different, the consumer media consumption behavior is different, and the consumer media response behavior is different. And that's what the well, that's what the book is all about. Yeah, and would would you say that that has made marketing even more important? Because in in my what pays my bills, I I've, what I've realized now is that our marketing is more important than it ever has been because just like what you said, people see it, they go online, they do their own research, they're the ones that are educating themselves. And by the time they actually come to me, we're almost almost order takers at this point. And there's not a lot of sales being done anymore. It's more a very well-researched consumer. Do you Do you feel the same way about that? Well, the answer to that really depends on what your industry is that you're in. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about advertising Dove soup or uh, soap or advertising uh, Coca-Cola or whatever it is, then marketing was always responsible for sales. Yeah. Sales, the sales team was basically responsible to make sure that when marketing did something, there was inventory on the shelf. Now, if you're a B2B business, so business to business, or one of our clients is what's called the business to business to consumer. So they sell to businesses that then sell to consumers. And uh, in that case, there, what you had to do is you had to really combine both efforts where you're combining the sales efforts with the, uh, with the, with the, you know, the B in the middle and you're combining your media efforts so that uh, there's a really good balance there. Uh, but what had happened though is, uh, is that I think because marketing and the channels uh, and the media channels that they're using became a lot more accountable uh, and then the, the, the need for it, uh, for them to really be a big part of sale, selling, then, uh, then yes, it did become a lot more important. Uh, in that, in my B2B or B2B to C example, all of a sudden your salespeople, they couldn't go out and visit. They couldn't go out belly to belly, face to face. They couldn't talk to everybody. They had to do it by Zoom or they had to do it by a phone call. And uh, so then, you know, it was thought that those activities were less, less effective. So they had to be boosted by, by the marketing that could, that could support them. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's interesting. I definitely understand that it would very much depend on exactly what industry that you're in. So I want to kind of, I guess, differentiate this book because you talked about how you you've got four or five other ones what makes this book different people say hey, i've already got guys i've got three of guys books already what what's this one gonna teach me that the other ones haven't yeah i think um uh two things when i when i wrote my first book uh it was kind of surprising it's the one on the end here uh, return on marketing investment um it was really about uh does marketing deliver an roi can I measure it? And, and the answer is yes. And, and I brought out a handful of methodologies, especially for a B2B environment. Um, then my, uh, my second book was kind of Marketing Calculator. And uh, it was then how, do I, how can I learn from what I measure to be able to improve what I'm doing? And, uh, and, and there it was still kind of, you know, not necessarily ad hoc, but it wasn't really into a, something that you could do on a day-to-day -day operational basis. So my, uh, my next book was, um, was a marketing machine. So how can I operationalize my measurement, my analytics, and then my recommendations so that every day, every week, every month, the uh, machine can, so to speak, give the marketer what they need to know to make the decisions, the best decisions for tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And, um, and so then marketing machine then was a little bit maybe more technical because it got really into the tools. 
And then the post-COVID marketing machine really was taking a lot of the concepts that were in marketing machine and then uh, putting case studies to it. And then also adding then this, this huge jolt to the market called, called COVID. So I guess the question I would have with that is, do these, because obviously you, you're talking about how these books kind of teach people how to make sure that their marketing is profitable for them. It is, is driving sales. There's a return on investment with it. I don't hear you saying, is it at all talking about how to you know, make an effective marketing campaign or somebody finding that in a different book? Because I would assume you, know, you can literally put it in, somebody, in front of somebody's face and get it on the exact right platform. But if it's just a bad campaign or it's something people don't, it doesn't resonate to people, it's not going to matter. So is that something you talk about at all? Or is that? Is that yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, one of the things, and this is why uh, the creative uh, folks, um, you know, that's why they get paid the big bucks. The uh, uh, it, you have to be creative. Uh, the Aflac Duck is 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 a company that we worked for, and uh, that duck it turned a sleepy industry into an industry that everybody kind of knows. If you get hurt and miss work, it won't hurt to miss work, as Yogi Berra's uh, you know, saying there. And that creativity is what drives everything. Now, just because you have a great create, creative concept, you know, if you get hurt and miss work, it won't hurt to miss work, then uh, it doesn't mean, though, that you can't get more sales out of it. You have this great concept, and now, so how much should I put in TV how much does TV support digital? How much does digital support social? How much does social support whatever? And that whole piece of it is really what the marketing machine is about. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, you, know you, you bake a cake. Um, you know, you can get a really super cake if you put in all fresh ingredients and whatever. And uh, But if you leave off the butter or if you leave off the salt or if you leave off one ingredient, then that cake just doesn't taste that good. So the idea is to make sure that when you're baking the cake, even though you've got a great re recipe, it won't hurt to miss work. Uh, you're nevertheless going to get a cake that is really, really going to taste great. And that's then really what Marketing Machine does is it takes it to the next level. It operationalizes and optimizes that op that those operations, the, the operational side of marketing, so that you can actually get significantly more revenue out of, out of any of the creative concepts that you've got. I like it. Well, I, I think we've given... The listener a lot to lot to digest. We started with the shroud of Turin, and now we're deep into into marketing. So I want to kind of <laughs> know a little bit about what you hope you know the the future holds. Whether it's in this marketing world, whether it's kind of in in the history world that you're dabbling in, mm -hmm. where where are you gonna where are we gonna be when we're talking in five years? Well, uh, I think there's still kind of a two path. Uh, as much as I'd like to uh, be able to say that my books are, you know, million bestsellers or whatever, it uh, uh, I'm not ready to retire yet, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least on that. So, uh, but the books are, uh, you know, definitely. So the the marketing machine, post COVID marketing machine book is definitely there to uh, support major marketers that make really critical marketing decisions on how they're going to uh, drive their businesses. Now, the Shroud book, uh, I'm following that up. I've got two or three other books coming behind that. And, um, and I've also got a book coming up uh, behind the, uh, the COVID post-COVID marketing machine. But on the Shroud side, I've got two or three books behind that where I'm going to do very similar kinds of, uh, of, of historical fictions where the idea is that it, there is history out there, 
but let's turn it into something that somebody can read and enjoy. I got you. Well, definitely things to for people to look out for. How can people find you know your your current books and then obviously connect with you to to make sure that they're up to date when when the Shroud book comes out? Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. So the marketing book, Post-COVID Marketing Machine, you can find that at marketingmachine.prorelevant.com. So ProRelevant is uh, is my company, marketingmachine.prorelevant.com. Uh, my Shroud book is called The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. And uh, that one you can find at guypowell.com. And uh, like I said, that'll be out in uh, the next couple uh, of months towards the beginning of the year. And um, and then you can also find me on, uh, I've got a podcast just like this one. I've got a backstory on the Shroud of Turin podcast on Apple and Spotify. I've got a podcast on the marketing book, which is um, uh, the backstory on marketing. And so you can find it on podcasts and we're on YouTube and any of the other things. Just look for Guy Powell or the backstory on marketing or the backstory on the Shroud. I love it. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jackson. Really appreciate it. Perfect. So that was Guy Powell. Great guy. Really enjoyed speaking with him. Learned so much about the Shroud. Learned so much about marketing. Like I said, such different type of topics. But I think that we kind of were able to intersect them pretty pretty well, given that you know the the same guy is is interested in both. So if you're interested in you know his marketing work, go check out those four books I think that he's written in that. If you're interested in learning more about the, the Shroud of Turin, go, uh, go check out that book as well. All of the links will be in the show notes. Really, really appreciated him being here. Appreciate you being here this week. Uh, if this is your first listen, I uh, urge you to go check out other weeks. Definitely have had a lot of amazing, amazing guests. I think you'll enjoy a lot of great ones coming up. So please be sure to uh, subscribe, follow, whether you're on Apple, whether you're on Spotify. Click that button to make sure that you uh, know when uh, each new episode comes out. Follow us on Instagram. Really appreciate that. Not in the Huff podcast is what we are on uh, there, jacksonhuff.com. There's a Facebook page. Go give us uh, some love in, in each of those spaces. Uh, if you want to be super awesome, leave a five-star rating on Apple and on Spotify. Write a written review on Apple. That's even more amazing. Uh, whatever you do, though, hope you come back next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.